in 2020, I preached a five-part series on this single chapter, Isaiah 40. And even that was necessarily selective. That I didn't, even in that five-part series, I didn't plumb the depths of all that's here in Isaiah 40. This morning, I have consolidated those five messages into one. We're not going to be here for, for three or four hours. Don't worry. I'm not going to preach them all back-to-back consecutively. I've necessarily been even more selective in editing down and, and, and uh, uh, removing large sections of, of what I preached in that series so that we could fit it all into one message this morning. If you want to go back and listen, I'm sure you will find that it'll be a, a profitable and enriching study to go back and listen to those again. They're online on our website, crbcbarbados.com. But I think even a survey of this chapter will be encouraging to us and helpful to us by way of reminder. Again, at the outset of the year, I decided to preach this uh, standalone sermon uh, this last Sunday morning before I take a couple of weeks off work. And we will have the privilege of hearing our brother, Tevin Brown, and then the new coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network, Mark Chansky, over the next several Sunday mornings. Um, I thought that it would be helpful, nevertheless, to be here at the beginning of the year, remind us who God is and where our hope is and where our help is, even if we have to be selective and simply survey the chapter. Let me try to give you the sense of it. The theme of the chapter is what is written in verse 1. Comfort for God's people. That's how the chapter starts. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And the comfort is developed in five sections. This chapter could be basically broken down into five sections. We can think of these as five acts of a play or five movements in a symphony. Or like some... Uh, movie series that we have known, five separate movies which all make up one single series. There's five parts of this chapter. And yet, they, they make a cohesive whole. So there are distinguishable parts and yet they make a cohesive whole. The theme of which is comfort for God's people. So let's look at each of these five parts in turn, beginning with verses 1 to 5. By way of reminder, the context of this passage is that Isaiah has just finished prophesying to Hezekiah the impending conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, which happened approximately 600 years before the birth of Christ. You can look at Isaiah 39 and see that the conquest of Jerusalem was promised. Isaiah 40 is the message of God to those people who will be conquered and will find themselves in Babylon. Though the prophesied events have not happened yet at the time of the writing of this chapter, they serve as the context in which Isaiah 40 is to be interpreted. God's people, having been carried away to Babylon, are to go and read Isaiah 40 and what follows in the subsequent chapters and hear God's word to them, the conquered, exiled people. 
And what does God want to communicate to his conquered, exiled people? He wants them to know that they are still his covenant people. After all, that's the significance of the language used in verse 1. My people, your God. Throughout Old Testament history, this is the great covenantal promise. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And God tells Isaiah to comfort, comfort my people, comfort my covenant people. Though Israel has been an unfaithful covenant partner, she was to rely on God, to depend on God, to worship God. We read even in Judges this morning, as we just make our way through the consecutive uh, readings of the Old and the New Testament. We read this morning even from Judges. The people of Israel abandoning God and seeking help from other gods. And God says, well, let them deliver you then. Over and over through Israel's history, she had been unfaithful to God and had left Him and worshipped other gods and depended on other nations and even the gods of other nations, idolatrously. Most recently in the history of the Jewish people leading up to Isaiah 40, they had leaned first on the Assyrians and made a political alliance with them, and then the Egyptians, and then finally they had actually leaned on the Babylonians, who eventually proved themselves untrustworthy and betrayed them and carried them away into captivity. Israel has been an unfaithful covenant partner. But though Israel has been an unfaithful covenant partner, God has not forgotten His covenant. The story of Judah is the story of an unfaithful people, but in spite of that, a faithful God. God is within the parameters of His covenant to punish these people for their disobedience. But as He has been so many times before, even in Judges, we read this cycle of God being gracious and ending up delivering them, even though they don't deserve it time and time again. As God has been so many times before, here in Isaiah 40, God promises to continue to be gracious to Judah. Not prosecuting their breach of covenant to the fullest extent possible, but rather treating them better than they deserve to show forth His grace. And remembering His covenant, that He has taken these people as His own, God promises in Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5, an end to their warfare and the pardoning of their iniquity. God promises elsewhere through the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 8, that one day His compassion will win out over His severity in dealing with the people of Judah. And it says that God's heart will recoil within Him at their punishment. His compassion will grow warm and tender. Look now at Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4. In these verses, God promises to come to His people. Who is the highway for? In these verses, look at your Bibles. Who is the highway for? It's for God. And which direction is God traveling? Away from Jerusalem? What comfort would that be? 
make a highway so God can get out of here. That, that would be antithetical to the whole way that this chapter begins. Comfort my people. God is coming to his people. God wants a highway made so he can get there quick and get there fast and get there in a direct line. God is traveling toward Jerusalem, it is implied. God is promising here to come to his people. Though Judah has been unfaithful to God, he promises that the warmth of his compassion will grow warm such that he relents from the punishment of his people and that he will return to them. The unfaithful wife will get a phone call, so to speak, from her faithful husband. I've been thinking about you and I want us to be together again. I'm coming over. This is the sort of grace portrayed in Isaiah 40. Intended to comfort his unfaithful people in exile in Babylon. And it will redound to the glory of the faithful heavenly bridegroom. That's in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. When God comes to his unfaithful people to comfort them and to do them good, in that very act, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All the earth will see the grace extended to sinners in the return of God to his unfaithful people. It will be, as Ephesians 1 says, and as we sang earlier in the service, to the praise of his glorious grace. God will bear the shame of taking back his unfaithful bride, but in the very act of bearing her shame, he will manifest the glory of his grace. So Isaiah 40 was written to comfort the exiled Jews who were presently in captivity in Babylon. God promises that he will come to them and be with them again, even though they don't deserve it. Though God has punished his people for their sin by sending them into exile, he will again come to them in grace. That's verses 1 to 5. Let's look now at verses 6 to 8. In verses 6 to 8, Isaiah receives a mandate to cry. Not cry like shedding tears or weeping, but cry like proclaim. Cry out loud. He's not merely to suggest, nor is he to just merely just share or address or teach or instruct the people. He's to proclaim with an earnestness, with a vigor, with an intensity that befits the message. And what is the message? Essentially this in verses 6 to 8 of Isaiah 40. Earthly helps and human promises are like grass. Here today and gone tomorrow. But God's word is a sure and lasting hope. The comparison between flesh and grass runs through all three verses of this short second section of Isaiah 40. In verse 6 we read all flesh is grass. In verse 7 we read the people are grass. And in verses 7 and 8 we read the grass withers. So if we put that together in the form of a logical argument, what is the obvious but unstated conclusion? If A, the people are like grass, and B, the grass withers, 
then logically it follows that people wither. People wither. People are like the grass of the soil, the flower of the field. They're not very strong to begin with. And then they fade. Then they wither and fade. Remember that the context of Isaiah's whole ministry, really, is that Judah was perpetually inclined to seek safety and security in the nations around her by making political alliances with them and worshipping their gods and trusting in their gods. Instead of in Yahweh, who had promised to be the protector of His people if they would but look to Him. As we mentioned a few moments ago, First it was Assyria, and then Egypt, and then Babylon in, in the recent history of the Jews leading up to the time of Isaiah 40. Judah had come to realize that they could not count on the help and the promises of flesh. Where are Assyria's promises? Where's Assyria's help? Here we are in captivity in Babylon. Where's Egypt? Where's Pharaoh? He didn't come to our defense. Here we are in captivity in Babylon. And Babylon? The worst of all, we leaned on them and they betrayed us and conquered us and took us into captivity. Judah had come to realize that they could not trust in and rest on the help of the flesh and the promises of the flesh. But God here sets Himself in contrast to flesh and insists that His help is good and His promises are good. And though the help of flesh fails and though the promises of flesh fail, the Word of the Lord is good and the help of the Lord is good. Judah can trust Him. So God says that He's going to come to His people. He's going to come back to His people though they've been unfaithful to Him. And can they trust Him? Yes! Because he's not like the Assyrians. He's not like the Egyptians. He's not like the Babylonians. They're just flesh. But the word of God does not wither. Stands forever. Now how will God help his people and do them good and be gracious to them after punishing them for sin? Let's look now at verses 9 to 11. In Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11... God promises to come to His people as a shepherd. And He will be a shepherd to them who is both fierce and gentle. God is coming. Behold your God, verse 9 says. He will tend His flock like a shepherd, says verse 11. Of course, God's coming as a shepherd to His people is most ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Christ Jesus into the world. Verse 10 makes it clear that He is coming with might and His arm rules for Him and His recompense is with Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is not weak and effeminate as so many depictions of Him throughout church history portray Him to be. Jesus is not the soft, limp-wristed sort of man that would give you a handshake which would make you feel like his hand is going to slip out of yours if you don't hang on tight. When, when John's Gospel tells us that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. It does not mean that Jesus will never condemn. It does not mean that Jesus will never afflict. It does not mean that Jesus will never avenge. It does not mean that Jesus will never speak a cross word to his opponents. Rather, what it means when it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What this means is that his first coming was to accomplish and to proclaim the salvation available to all mankind while God exercises patience toward a world in rebellion against Him. Christ's first coming, if I can put it this way, was to publish terms of surrender prior to the impending invasion of Christ with His heavenly host on the last day in which His enemies will be decisively defeated forevermore and there will be no further opportunity to turn. And so Isaiah speaks about the fierceness of the coming shepherd saying that his recompense is with him and he's coming with might. He's going to rule with his arm. When he arrives to rescue his sheep ultimately in the end it will be bad news for the wolves. It will be bad news for the goats. It will be bad news for the unbelievers, the enemies of Christ and His church. This recompense of the wicked is like the arrival of Rambo or the SWAT team or whatever other image you want to use and that it is one and, at one and the same time a comfort to some and a terror to others. It is great comfort to the people of God that Jesus will one day come with recompense for His enemies and ours. Like the family of a victim of injustice is comforted when the judge gives a just verdict and justice is served. Like the hostage is comforted when his captor is shot by the SWAT team sniper. So the people of God are comforted when our persecutors and those who mocked and scoffed at us are snuffed out and silenced never more to hurt us and shame us. And yet the recompense of the wicked should be a great terror to those on the receiving end. Does the one who formed the sun in the sky not know how to prepare a hell hot enough to make you regret your rebellion against Him? Does the one who formed the vast mountain ranges of solid rock not know how to prepare a punishment weighty enough to absolutely crush it? Consider whether you will receive recompense from your sins or for your sins from the Lord Jesus. Or whether, as verse 11 says, you will be gathered up in His arms. But either way, make no mistake, this fierce and gentle shepherd is coming to do His people good and to render vengeance on His and His people's enemies. That's verses 9 and 11. Or 9 to 11. Let's consider now 12 to 26. 
lest someone wonder whether God is going to be able to do that which He has promised. Could He overcome even the mighty Babylonians? Lest anyone wonder along these lines, God presents Himself in Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 26, as incomparably greater. Incomparably greater. Not just than any one nation, like Babylon, or Assyria, or Egypt, or wherever else, but incomparably greater than all the nations combined. The nations, plural, are like a drop from a bucket. Dust on the scales, verse 15 says. This is the theme of this whole section, even though it's large and there's lots of imagery and poetic language. This is the theme of this whole fourth section of Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 26. God is not profited by the nations, religiously or otherwise. You could, you could cut down all the trees in Lebanon and offer up all the beasts, and it wouldn't help God in any way. God is not contingent upon the nations, nor dependent upon them in any sense whatsoever. Doesn't need their advice. Doesn't need their resources. God is not impressed with them, the nations, in any sense. You consider a glass of water empty when you take your last gulp. You don't even, you don't even give a thought to the drop that's still in there. You say it's empty. Nothing in there. That's what God thinks of the nations. There's nothing in there. It, when, you, when you weigh something, and then you take whatever it is you've weighed off the scale, you consider that there's nothing on the scale. Well, technically, if you get out a microscope, there's dust on the scale. What God says is the nations are like that. Like they're, they're, I consider the scale empty when the nations are on it. As creator, as creator, not created, as creator, God is far superior to anything or anyone created. And so he mocks the gods of the nations in 18 to 20. <laughs> who, who is like God? The gods of the nations? What, you mean blocks of metal? That you have to create chains, silver chains for them in verse 19 so they don't fall down? Or if you're a little too poor, but you still want to have a decent God, you go get a nice hardwood God. God's like, nah, I'm the creator. Not the created, like these gods. These gods are made of created stuff. Even, even when these things are symbols and, and stand-ins for demonic powers. Even those demonic powers are but fallen angels, which are, again, created beings. So what are you going to compare to God? These are the theological truths brought out in this section. This passage is not telling us that God literally has huge hands so that He can just take up the seeds in His hands. Or that God is the possessor of gigantic measuring cups that He can put all of the mountains into or or that he has a colossal scale on which he can weigh everybody at once. Now, this is, this is an example of what, what theologians call anthropomorphic language. 
which means that it's attributing human attributes to God so that we can understand something of what He is like, which would otherwise be less intelligible to us. Without this sort of language, what could Isaiah say that would give us something of the truth? We could say, God is big. Yes, indeed. God is great. God is powerful. Yes, absolutely. True statements, yes. But doesn't this capture the same truths a little better? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span, which is the distance from fingertip to fingertip? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Here God inspires Isaiah to write in this section of Isaiah 40 with anthropomorphic language to convey and to impress upon our hearts in language that moves us that he is far superior to Babylon. And he's far superior to any other nation that may come after. And that he is able to do what he has promised to do. Namely, to come to his people as a shepherd to bring recompense to his enemies and to gather up his people like lambs in his arms. Can he do it? Yes. What he has promised, he will do. The word of our God stands forever and even all of the nations together cannot stand in his way because they're like nothing to him. This is the theme of verses 12 to 26. Let's look now finally at verses 27 to 31. This section is a kind of bookend where God reiterates that He's going to do good to His people. As He said He would at the beginning of the chapter. Though we've seen by now in these last four verses that God is mighty and big and His Word never fails and He is therefore so different and so superior to all nations. God's people don't have to wonder if they're too small for Him to notice. They need not say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. As if God, as big as He is and as great and as glorious as He is, is is too big. He's occupied with greater things and couldn't be bothered to stoop down to help His tiny little people. God's people don't need to say, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Verses 27 and 31 reiterate that God will do good to His people. And that weakness and smallness don't disqualify us from His care. But our weakness and our smallness actually provides the context for His care to be seen and noticed and magnified just as our unfaithfulness is an opportunity for God to demonstrate His great faithfulness so that all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord. Even the first responders, the arm of flesh, the SWAT teams, and the firefighters, and so forth, those who we consider strong, able-bodied men, able to take care of us, Even they reach the end of themselves at some point. Even Rambo reaches the end of himself at some point. 
Our power is not inexhaustible. Even the best of men are men at best. Reckon with it then, as Isaiah 40 and verse 30 says, even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. You can't just dig deeper forever. So when you come to the end of yourself then, when you faint, when you have no might, when you're weary and when you fall exhausted, what do you do? Whatever it is that you're dealing with, when you come to the point that you just can't watch the nightly news anymore because of the way that the world is going, when you can't perhaps open the door to your deceased child's bedroom because the memories would come flooding back, when you can't face another round of chemo, whatever it is, when you're done, finished, when you grow weary, when you faint, when you fall exhausted, when you're done, what do you do? In these situations, you have an opportunity to really wait on the Lord. You have an opportunity to really trust in God's character and in God's promises. And the prophet's reassurance is that those who wait for the Lord those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. This does not mean that your 85-year-old grandmother will be able to arm wrestle a lumberjack and win so long as she trusts in the Lord. Instead, this, this does mean that having come to an end of herself and looked to the Lord, she'll find herself enveloped with a strength beyond herself. In whatever it is that she's dealing with that's overwhelming to her. She'll find that she is like a lamb carried in the bosom of the shepherd. This means that the 35-year-old mother who feels utterly exhausted with parenting will find that when she looks to the Lord, spiritual strength will be sufficient for the day. This means that the 50-year-old man trying to work hard at his job and stay faithful in his marriage and lead his family in a Christward direction will find the help of the Lord in these endeavors once he looks to the Lord in dependence and trust. And so on and so forth. When the Lord asks us to do things that we cannot do in our strength, and we come to the end of ourselves. Having come to the end of ourselves, we're still not really at the end yet. Because the Lord is there when we come to the end of ourselves to bear us up, to help us, to carry us, to replenish our strength. We shall be able to run and not grow weary. To walk and not faint. Along whatever path the Lord has for us to walk. You see, these people in Babylon were told, look, 
God is going to return to his people and do them good. But they're like, yeah, but it's still hard here in Babylon. And we can't deal with this. And God's saying, believe me, that I am coming as a shepherd, fierce and gentle, to gather up my lambs in my bosom and to, to bring recompense to my enemies. And in the meantime, when you faint and when you fall exhausted, look to me. And I'm going to replenish your strength. And I'm going to sustain you until I fulfill all those promises to you. Our way is not hidden from the Lord. And our right is not disregarded by the Lord. Trust that. No matter how you may feel. And God will sustain you when you come to the end of yourself. Sometimes things look and feel hopeless, don't they? There the Jews were in Babylon. The wall of Jerusalem broken down. There Jesus was in the tomb. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. But it looks pretty hopeless right now. There you are. The beginning of 2023. A Christian. You believe in God. But you're going through some stuff. You need to believe what God says here about himself. That in Christ he has come to us to do us good ultimately. That he has, he has come to pardon our iniquities and to end our warfare. And one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and bring that to ultimate, that promise to ultimate fulfillment. In the meantime, you might feel like you're getting pretty weary. Like you're falling exhausted. You need to believe here this promise. What God says that in the meantime, until his promises are fully and finally fulfilled, there's one for the interim. That when you're exhausted, when you're weary, when you're at the end of yourself, look to the Lord. And he's going to strengthen you until in and through Christ Jesus, he makes all things new. For the Jews in Babylon, one day they went home. One day Jesus rose. And whatever ordeal you're going through, if you are a child of God, one day God will lead you out of it. One day, God in His unsearchable understanding will bring everything to its proper end. And in the meantime, those who wait on the Lord will be able to run or at least walk, as that verse says, along the path that God has ordained for them without becoming weary and fainting. When we come to the end of ourselves, God will supply us with His strength and carry us through. So at the outset of 2023, trust not in the arm nor the promises of flesh, but instead look to God. Trust in His character and His promises as better than the help and the promises of the flesh. Trust everything this chapter tells you about our God, including the truth that He has come to us as a shepherd in Christ. Turn from your sins toward that shepherd. Shift your confidence away from anything and everyone else toward that shepherd. 
This is waiting on Him. This is waiting on the Lord. And then you have the ultimate hope of reward instead of recompense. When He comes fully and finally back along that highway to us to do us good and end our warfare. And believe the promise that's given to us in the meantime that even when you come to the end of yourself, God will strengthen you enough to keep you going along the path that He has ordained for you until that path finally leads you home. At the beginning of 2023, resolve to wait on the Lord.